Hi, my name is Ben Armstrong. Hi, this is David Koch. My name is Thomas Maurer. Hi, I'm Donna Sarkar. Hi, my name is Lana Montgomery. Hi, I'm Seth Juarez. Hi, I'm Aaron Thomas. I'm Jess Dodson. Hi, I'm Rocky Heckman. Hi, I'm Sonia Cup. Hi, I'm Troy Hunt. Hello, this is Wally Mead. My name is Reed Purvis. Hi, I'm Lars Kling. Hi, my name is Alan Birchall. Hi, I'm Adam Fowler. Hi, I'm Scott Guthrie, and you're listening to the Need to Know Podcast. All the latest Microsoft Cloud news, as well as industry guest deep dive conversations. It's a Need to Know Podcast. All thanks to the CIA Ops patron community. The Need to Know Podcast. Catch us on Twitter and Facebook, N2K Podcast, and online at ciaops.podbean.com. Welcome along to the Need to Know Podcast. My name is Robert Crane, and you join me for episode 284. Hope everybody out there is doing well. Now, some interesting news from Microsoft. Well, perhaps not from Microsoft, but what's been brought up in the uh, forums, technical forums, is the fact that Microsoft seems to have changed the OneDrive uh, for business limit from five terabytes down to one terabyte. Now, there was the capability, if you had a certain amount of licenses, to be able to upgrade the standard one terabyte to five terabytes for most plans. So this was available across most plans. Now, what seems to have happened is that Microsoft has changed that and is now limiting that capability to upgrade to five terabytes uh, only if you have one of the enterprise plans. So I'll put a link in the notes so you can go and have a look uh, at this um, for this thread about what's going on here. Uh, but if you have um, or looking to increase that limit on OneDrive for business from one terabyte to five terabytes, it uh, looks as though Microsoft now is enforcing that only for a limited set of plans. So again, go in, have a look at that, read that, uh, and just be aware of those changes. Now, probably the other really big news is the fact that Microsoft has now released Microsoft Defender for Business to GA, General Availability. It'll be rolling out, for example, to the Microsoft 365 Business Premium SKUs for free. Uh, so again, if you do have those SKUs, go and have a look. You'll find that that has been rolled out to your uh, environment. Now, the standalone package, which will also uh, be available, isn't available just yet. Microsoft, we're waiting on word from Microsoft as to when that will be available as a standalone SKU. So this now means in the Defender for Endpoint space, we have a P1, uh, now Defender for Business, and now a P2. So we've got those three plans available to us. But if you are a Microsoft 365 Business Premium customer, then it is included for free uh, in your environment, and you can start rolling that out uh, today if you want to do that. Now, another enhancement that Microsoft has made recently is the new Office so if you go to portal.office.com in your Microsoft 365 environment, this is the opening splash page. Um, I think that they have improved the look and the feel. They've made it more consumer friendly or end user uh, friendly. So it will list, for example, you know, recommended documents, uh, things that you've been accessing uh, recently. So lots of good little links there for you to work to. Uh, you can still install Office and navigate to all the major services there. Um, but again, Microsoft is continuing to enhance and improve that. So if you haven't seen it, go and have a look at portal.office.com and take a spin around uh, the new and improved office.com. Now, along with some enhancements uh, to office.com, we've also got some improvements mainly for the Mac environment 
for Endpoint Manager. So if you go in here, again, link will be in the show notes. You can go in and have a look here. There are also some improvements around the Windows Autopilot capability as well uh, that's going to make things a little bit better. So we're seeing these sort of services, these major services like you know, Endpoint Manager and so on, be incrementally improved uh, over time. So make sure that you do keep up to date. And typically, they're monthly releases. So uh, sign up and have a look to the RSS feed to get any new updates that are happening with all of these uh, services that are provided by Microsoft. Now, some more enhancements are also coming for OneNote uh, on the web in Teams. So we've now got the ability to do a mode switcher. So we've also got the capability to improve copy and paste, uh, zoom in, zoom out, uh, picture as a background, auto inking, uh, resize videos, and so on. So remember, all of this is happening uh, on the web, and Microsoft is, uh, again, focusing on uh, the web and also a single uh, desktop experience for uh, OneNote. So again, beware of all those changes. We've talked about this in previous episodes. So if you do want more information on that, uh, pop back to a couple of previous episodes uh, around that. So really, that's the majority of the news. I don't want to spend too much time uh, talking about things perhaps that aren't uh, relevant to the audience there. So I will move on, but I will remind you that if you do have any um, suggestions, comments or feedback, please, you can hit me up on the Twitter at DirectorCIA. Also email director at CIAOps.com. I encourage you to follow me on Twitter at DirectorCIA. And remember, if you do want to hear any guests or have got some suggestions or maybe want to come on yourself, please don't hesitate to reach out and contact me. So with that, why don't we get into the interview for this episode? Welcome along to the Need to Know podcast. For this episode, I'm joined by Bryn Lewis. Welcome, Bryn. Good afternoon. Uh, My name is Bryn Lewis. I'm a Microsoft MVP based out of Christchurch, New Zealand. Uh, my special thing, things are Azure IoT, and I also run after-school classes teaching kids how to program and build hardware. Excellent. Well, um, what I brought Bryn on to have a bit of a chat about uh, is the IoT topic and how it sort of fits into the Microsoft Cloud, typically with Azure. But why don't you maybe start off with telling us a little bit about, you know, what interests you about IoT? Why is it something that you're focusing on and spending your time and, and have a passion around? Well, I guess it goes back to when I first entered the computer business. Back in the late 80s, I was working in a pathology lab. And effectively, a pathology lab is a factory with tight deadlines for processing. And then I moved into the power industry. We were building control systems for power stations and for switchyards, and that got me interested in building high reliability systems. In those days, it was called SCADA and telemetry, and it was all provided by companies like Rockwell, uh, Allen Bradley, uh, Sire, uh, Omron, Panasonic, people like that. And then 15, 20 years later, IoT reappeared, and I, I sort of jumped across into it. Okay, so as you say, we've had a history of inverted commas IoT or control systems for, you know, a long time, but we're shifting from probably, you know, a more proprietary base to a more open uh, environment. Um, 
is that a positive thing in your environment, uh, in your opinion? Is is that, you know, really going to open this up to more people? Because I certainly see a lot more homebrew, a lot more people tinkering with it, it seems. But from your point of view, is is the world opening up for IoT? Yeah. In the days of Alan Bradley and uh, Omron, it was very hard. It was mainly targeted towards electrical and heavy power engineers and people doing process controls in factory, and the bar was fairly high to enter. Just recently, I was trying to do some dev work with an Omron PLC, and they wanted a grand Kiwi for their programming software, and I haven't actually paid money for development tools for maybe a decade. Uh, these days, the bar is a lot lower. Uh, hobbyists can get a Raspberry Pi, or my favorite platforms, the .NET Micro Framework, which lets you run a cutback.net version of .NET on embedded PLCs or tiny CLR from GHI Electronics, which is a really robust industrialized version of the old Microsoft uh, .NET Micro Framework rather than the Nano Framework. And my specialist interest is um, the low power wireless for connecting these devices together. In a former life, I worked on uh, Trunking radio, which was the predecessor to cellular networks, it's used. It was used largely by trucking companies and public safety police and railways, and so forth. Okay, so is is IoT hardware or is it software, or do you need a you know a comfort level with with both sides of it? You know, how would a a traditional IT person look at this, is it something I need skills sort of in both or is it something that's more attuned to uh, people who are comfortable with hardware or software? How does it sort of fit into the traditional scope there? It doesn't go well for very siloed people. I have a background in electronics, computer programming, physical hardware, so I can have a foot in many camps, but I'm not big into like workflow or data warehousing. So you don't need to be a, a specialist in any topic, but you really need to appreciate other people's disciplines. So the projects I work on, I acquire data from sensors in the field, low power wireless back to a base station that goes into a, the LP WAN network. And then it comes out the back of the LP WAN network and I collect it, coordinate it and then repair it for people who are using Logic Apps or Azure Data Lake or Azure Functions and things like that. Uh, I don't do that side, but I appreciate how to prepare um, data and present it to them. Okay. But so Azure IoT Central gives a, a low bar for graphs and for emails and things like that. Cool. Okay. So you've mentioned the Azure um, side of things there and the Azure as a collection capability for your IoT devices. Do you just want to maybe map out for us, um, you know, the IoT device and sort of what what it is, what's what it, you know, what hardware or software, what you need to do, and then connecting that into an Azure environment to, you know, receive the data and aggregate it as you're talking about. So just give us a bit of idea of, you know, what it takes to get an IoT device, you know, sending its data into something like Azure. If you start with something like uh, Azure IoT Edge device or, uh, in my case, a wireless gateway or an embedded uh, PLC, we have problems with temperature ranges, so we use embedded devices which will do 
minus 20 to plus 60, which is not usually a consideration in an office. So those devices are on a farm, and then at the edge of the farm, we have a field gateway, which collects the data from the individual devices, and they talk all sorts of proprietary protocols. And then from the edge of the farm, we usually run it up into an Azure IoT hub, and we're talking either MQTT, message queuing telemetry transport, AMQP, the advanced message queuing protocol, or HTTP. And they have some advantages and disadvantages. Uh, MQTT, you have to have a, a connection for every device in the field, which can be a problem, but it gives you quite quick detection of disconnects. AMQP lets you pull connections, so you don't have to have an individual connection, but it can be a, a, a wee bit slower to discover a device has gone, or HTTP, it's basically every time you push a message up, which is supposed to be every 20 minutes, uh, you only get notification or you only know you've missed, it's missed. Uh, once you've got it up into the Azure IoT Hub, often what we do is uh, use the uh, Azure IoT Hub device provisioning service. Uh, in the Smart Ag company, we're aiming for courier bag deployment. So if something dies in the field, we can chuck it in a courier bag, post it out to the local electrician or even the farmer if they're a good one, and they can pull it out of the box, plug it in, turn it on, and it will uh, scan a barcode and it'll provision the device in the backend systems. And uh, you can even do quite com complex provisioning processes, like you partially provision a device in the factory, then you provision it at the in-country rep and then provision it in the field. So we use that to improve support. Then once we've got it to the IoT hub, we can use Azure Stream Insights to get it out. Sometimes we use Azure IT Hub events and run it into storage queues, Azure uh, Event Hub, uh, Azure Service Bus. And then depending after that, we can uh, run it into uh, more Azure functions. We do a bit of ML in Azure functions or stream it into something like Cosmos or a data lake for post-processing. On the Azure IT Central side, that pretty much mandates the device provisioning service. So we get the data out of the field, feed it up to an Azure, the SAS, Azure IT Central, and then we can drop data out of the back of that into Azure uh, storage, or it can call Azure Functions or Logic Apps. And then from Azure IT Central is really good for the quick demo. We can get some nice graphs and some notification emails. So uh, the current system runs in dairy sheds. So if we get the milker in the dairy shed overriding our system at half past five in the morning by pressing the stop button, we get an email saying, hey, you need to do it. And we actually uh, have security cameras in the uh, dairy shed looking down onto the yards, controlling the gates in the yard. And then we can scrape pictures out of Azure IoT store, uh, sort of out of Azure storage. And um, the support people can look at these images every 30 seconds and go, oh, the reason they pressed the stop button was because there was a cow leaning against the gate and the gate hadn't moved for a couple of minutes. So we, we use a fair sweep, a fair chunk of the IoT sweep. Okay, so when you looked at it, and there's a lot of Azure services that you've mentioned there uh, integrating obviously together, but take a step back a little bit, apart from the IoT devices at the uh, you know the point of recording, 
you know, what sort of, is it an expensive operation to do inside Azure, but, or is it, you know, the, a cost-effective way because of the way that Azure's doing its billing and the way it's recording things? So, and a cost basis side of it, you know, what sort of money are we talking about here? Is it, you know, a relatively um, expensive option or is it something that's very, very cheap and easy to do? It's real good for prototypes because most of the services you can get a free tier, which offers usually the same functionality as the one of the more advanced tiers. Uh, uh, the free tier and Azure IT hubs caps you out of a number of messages and a number of devices, I think. So, uh, and you're only allowed one per subscription, but they're really good for getting something up and running. Uh, similar sort of functionality with Azure IT Central, they have a, a you know, an entry level cheap or free try before you buy version. We, um, the one thing that trips people up is uh, if you go from the free tier of Azure IoT Central to the cheapest one, with the cheapest one, you get don't get um, C to D messaging, sending messages to the devices. With the S1 tier, I think it is, you get the capability to send messages from the cloud to devices. So it's, it's quite cool having a logic app send a message to an Azure IoT hub, which sends a message to a device in the field. And then you can see a 15 meter long, half a ton gate move 10 degrees. Does right. make this some interesting OSH issues though. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, uh, yeah, what do they call it? It's, um, yeah, the, the the future is here sort of thing. Now, the on the, the, the Azure um, side of things here is, when you went and did this particular solution you're talking about, was it something that you took a traditional approach, you sat back and you designed it sort of from end to end, or did it sort of grow in the fact that we'll try this and this works and then we'll add to it, we'll add to it, we'll keep building, oh, this would be great, can we add this? Is it a system that's grown like that or is IoT, you know, really something you need to sit back and design end to end and make sure you get all the protocols and the integrations to logic apps and all that sort of stuff? How has this project matured over time? Um, this project started off with a focus on the devices and it depends what staff you get involved first. Quite often if you get electrical engineers and a bit of programmers that turns into the tail that wags the dog. So because I'm a bit broad um, with my skill set, I can work in all areas but often we'll start with a cheap and cheerful device, even just a you know, a micro PC, a desktop microprocessor. Um, then we'll run a fairly chatty protocol off the device to the cloud. Then if that works, we'll replace the um, non-rugged desktop PC with something which is a bit more bulletproof. And if we're running over rural broadband, a you know, farm broadband, it can be a bit um, slow and have a high latency, so we might revisit the protocol. We're using once we've got it up into the Azure IoT Hub. As soon as we're getting data there, we stream it off to a data lake because we'll come back to it later and look at it. And then we might refine the census data that we're collecting from in the field. And then uh, one of our interns has been doing a bit of uh, ML.net work on the data. So we're looking into the data and figuring out that. Though there's a correlation between these two things, there's not necessarily causation. And they'll come back and say, hey, it would be really useful if. Then uh, the CEO 
controls the, we give him a hard time about it, the eye candy. He's really keen. Farmers are drowning with information. So he basically wants to cut out the, here's your daily report type thing. He basically says it's an email or an SMS to the milker saying, do this. So we've got a project in the pipeline that I'm working on now. And the whole aim is to deliver a notification to a farmer about an issue in the yard a half hour before the milking starts. So it's the marketers would use the term actionable insights. Okay, so obviously um, it, this is you know solving the, the the business problems out there, and it's hopefully largely driven by business outcomes, as you say, and. That we've seen with technology um, and some of the challenges when the technology people do get involved in it. But from a skill set point of view, I mean, do you consider that the renaissance, let's call it, of IoT that we're going through now, are there the people with the skill sets to get into it? And if not, is the entry capability for people to get up to speed who are interested in this, you know, a, a fairly simple process or is there you know, a large amount of learning uh, and, you know, development of their own career to get to that point. So, you know, is it an easy field to get into and are people, you know, that are capable moving into this um, field at the moment? Yeah, I find a lot of people tend to grow out of their verticals. Like I've got friends who are embedded developers and they're building software for microcontrollers. They seem to grow up towards the um, the IoT infrastructure, the IoT hubs and DPS and field gateways and protocol translation gateways. And then I've got other friends who work on data lakes, Power BI, um, logic apps, and they sort of grow down. And after a while, they, they meet in the middle, which is where I am. I run after school classes at a local girls' school, and my students do, funnily enough, IoT projects. I've, uh, I'm filling the pipeline. Oh, I'm trying to fill the pipeline. I've got one student, uh, she's at Otago doing computer science this year, and oh, data analysis and a bit of uh, computer engineering. Her final year project, which got her a scholarship, which is like the top 3% in New Zealand of this particular topic, was a system which went, was mounted on trees in a walnut um, orchard for monitoring the temperature and humidity in the canopy to work out what the best time to apply blight spray was because blight spray is copper based and you don't want too many heavy metals building up in the soil. Um, and then I've had an intern working for me this year for this Christmas break, Rosie, and she's been building proof of concepts of ideas that the CEO has because the CEO's out talking to farmers. And he'll go, farmer will go, oh, this is giving me a buzzing noise. And then he'll come back and say, I've got farmers trying to do this, and it really frustrates them. And Rosie and I will knock up a proof of concept so that he's got something to show them. We've been working on a couple of demos which are designed to fit in the deck of a ute so that the uh, CEO can turn up um, with a trailer with a barbecue on it pull the back of the ute open and show them our demos and go, would you pay good money for this? Um, the thing about the dairy industry is that uh, farmers share knowledge because you know, the rising tide lifts all boats. So if one farmer's got an idea and it works well, he'll, he or she will chat to their fellow farmers 
and go, I'm trying this. What do you think? And it's really good for us because we can um, chat to them and they're quite willing to share stuff with us, unlike some businesses, which tend to be a bit secretive. Okay, so just changing gears here a little bit, um, one of the growing concerns in IT generally is around security. With the computerization of lots and lots of these little endpoints, there are plenty of stories out there of poorly constructed and poorly secured devices that are making us more vulnerable for various reasons. And, you know, there are famous stories of IoT devices being exploited um, and, you know, uh, being insecure. How do we, you know, where do you see the security? Is this something that is, you know, a big concern? Is something that's easily fixed or do we need to make sure that it's, you know, uh, revisited and baked in from the beginning? I know it's not an easy question, but, you know, how do you sort of address the security concerns many people have around, you know, IoT solutions? Uh, my first piece of advice to any customers don't DIY anything. Crypto is hard. Digital signatures are hard. Secure hardware is hard. Um, don't DIY anything. And it's also important to engineer for life. There's a new version of Windows every couple of years. People expect their heater in their house to last 15 to 20 years. The systems we're deploying into the field have got to last five to six years. So you've got to be careful about the libraries and the hardware and so forth you choose. Something which has got a LTSC, a long-term support arrangement. Yeah, we use specific versions of operating systems and we, we just don't use any industrial computer. We go to specific vendors who say, yeah, you'll be able to buy these until 2028 and we'll support them for another couple of years after that. Yeah, you, you couldn't expect five years of life out of your desktop PC, but we have to do that. And for us, we have the additional thing, uh, quite a bit of our IP is in the ML, the YOLO and so forth models that we run on the devices. Because um, we're on the end of a rural broadband link, we can't really do any time sensitive stuff in the cloud. So um, we have to secure that um, intellectual property on the device with encrypted drives and so forth and a secure boot process, the UEFI boot process. Um, things like managing certificates can be a world of pain as well. Sometimes with DPS, you use certificates to uh, mutually authenticate stuff, mutually authenticate clients. It's it's hard work because you yeah things like a starting a TLS session has about a one k payload, and over a, a LoRaWAN link, which is two hundred and fifty bits a second, twelve hundred bits a second something like that you really don't want to do these sort of chunky exchanges and people forget about um, if you've got a million devices there's a lot of ingest going on uh, the sort of lifetimes we're talking about I've got one gig I did 10 12 years ago and the devices are still out in the field we can't source them anymore so when one blows up we have to go and find a new device. And the problem is we're trying to avoid having lots of different devices in the field. So we might stock up, stock up and get another 15 or 20, just put them on the shelf ready to go. Okay, so that's sort of an interesting conversation because, you know, as you mentioned in IT, we're seeing this you know, very 
increasingly fast turnover of devices and operating systems and and again the the you know your fridge or whatever generally runs 10 plus years very few pcs probably out there running that period of time with the same uh, software they came with um, uh, originally so when you put those iot devices out there in the field is the expectation or is your approach are they something that can be you know uh, upgraded or have their firmware or are they a sort of a this is it from a hardware largely hardware point of view or is it something that you're consciously going to have to you know push updates to or bios or is it you know really you want that super stable operating system with the minimal overhead that's you know got uh you know security sort of baked in from the box how do you see the you know because there's going to be a need as you've said to update things you know over time how is that approach sort of taken in the iot world are we moving to a world where yes you know you'll be able to update things automatically or they'll self-update perhaps how is that being sort of addressed in devices that don't have a screen and a keyboard with our devices we can push updates out to them and we remotely administer them we're revisiting the process because it's a bit of a pain currently. We need to make it better for managing devices at scale. It's the sort of things that don't trip up desktop developers, which can cause a bit of pain. I worked on a system where, uh, uh, how would I explain this? We were talking to Azure IT Hub, uh, and then Microsoft updated the certificates for the Azure IT Hubs and changed the certificate authority. Because the device we were using had no flash, we'd actually had to bake the client certs into our device and we had to go out and revisit those devices. Things like that you don't occur to a desktop dev because the certs are all taken care of for them. We also do LTSCs, um, the long-term support contract arrangements. Uh, we also... Um, a really robust update process is important because if we brick a device in a dairy shed, milking is from 4.30 in the morning and you don't want a dairy farmer shouting at you at 4 o'clock in the morning. Um, and in the afternoon, it's not so bad. So we we aim for doing updates on a Tuesday around lunchtime just as the morning milking is finished. Uh, there's a classic story from NIST, the American National Institute of Science and Technology. They bought one of those big screen TVs with a um, smart TV, and they pulled it apart and looked at all of the uh, libraries and so forth used in it. It had like a couple of hundred CVEs. It was only going to be su supported for a couple of years after it shipped, and it was acquiring CVEs at like a rate of one a week or something. And that's a sort of a tax service we can't afford in, in the IoT world. Um, with something like Azure RTOS, uh, if you're doing a mission critical system, I used to do power stations and switchyards. And if you do something um, bad there, it gets real expensive and really scary real quick. Um, there are versions of Azure RTOS which are certified for um, mission cri critical applications, which is really good. You just pay a wee bit more money and they will uh, certify it for like healthcare, industrial control, things like that. But updates is a real killer because you've got a, 
uh, over-provision your hardware so you can take a backup of what you're currently running, deploy the new stuff, and then if it all goes pear-shaped, flip back to the old version without bricking it. Okay, so just to, um, you know, is a bit getting towards the end of our, our time is if there's someone out there who's, you know, maybe a keen home automator plugging in the, the bits from Amazon or Google or whatever and, and you know, the pre-canned bits and wants to take that next step and get a bit more hands-on, a bit more down into the weeds when it comes to IoT and some of the stuff we've been talking about. Do you have any resources or recommended approach that you would give these people to, you know, start getting a better feel for sort of the projects that you're working on and what you're talking about if they are keen to to sort of move their career in this direction? There's a good series of uh, IoT developer training done by Jim Bennett from Microsoft, and it covers st starting with a Raspberry Pi, working through um, Hexter. I run I've got a, quite a lot of projects on Hackster. Uh, uh, Instructables. If you get a, a wee bit more serious buying gear, there's a website called Tind. You've got to be real careful typing that URL, T-I-N-D-I-E. <laughs> and that has a bunch of custom gear on. I've even got um, custom gear I've designed. Uh, there's a few good groups discussing it. Um, uh, a lot of the people for casual hobbyists, Adafruit, C Studio, um, uh, the so micro might, e people. So what we might get you to do, obviously, is just send through some of these resources, and we'll put them in um, the notes for people to to go and click on some of these um, specifics, rather than necessarily having to go and and drill into them. So there's a very, you would agree, a very mature. Um, ecosystem for those who are looking to get involved with uh, IoT? Oh, definitely. People like Jim Bennett. It's a video training course of like 12 or 24, I think, episodes, and it bootstraps you up from hobbyist through to sort of the edge of professional. It's, it's pretty good. Um, and there's people uh, in Microsoft who Twitter a lot about it. There's a couple of um, public facing websites. I'm interested in machine learning. So there's uh, uh, ML for good. The ML.net people, the machine learning people do a series of really good presentations about using ML on ARM64 and x86 for Smart Edge. And that's, those are really useful. Okay. Now, if you did want to get into this field, you know, what sort of businesses or companies um, would you be looking to get involved with or go and work for? Are there dedicated IoT firms or is, is it like a little sub area of a larger company? Um, you know, how would they look to actually get involved in this as a professional career? Are those options open to them to actually go into a business and start doing IoT seriously, as you've been talking about? A lot of it comes down to which part of IoT you want to get into. Um, if you're an embedded developer or somebody who's interested in hardware, there are quite a few firms who specialise in building hardware here in Christchurch. There are at least a dozen firms who build hardware for custom verticals 
ranging from video analysis of the height of grass through to uh, smart devices for farmers for process control and then in the middle where i play there's people who work with uh, wireless protocols so you know networks doing nbiot LoRaWAN, and then there are people who work processing the data that's been harvested with logic apps and streaming analytics and data lakes and things like that often you start where you feel comfortable work your way through to the bit that interests you Okay, and that, as you've mentioned, with um, some of your students, is effectively open to just about anybody these days. Yeah, well, the entry-level devices that my students use are $25 US. The sensors I use for some of my IoT projects, they'd be about this, half the size of an old uh, the duster for cleaning a whiteboard. They're 30 bucks. Um, Raspberry Pi is, you know, 40 it's a real low bar to entry. But uh, was it Luth uh, said premature optimization is the root of all evil? You really got to understand how all of the bits communicate and exchange data so that you don't over optimize some area where it's not necessarily important. It's all about trade offs between uh, bandwidth consumed, readability or inspectability of the data. Battery life is a big consideration. Um, if you too chatty, you need a bigger solar panel, you need a bigger battery. Uh, we used to joke that um, the best way to protect our systems was to put a stop sign next to them because we had systems out in the country with a solar panel and people would shoot at them. <laughs> and we, we figured that stop signs are always full of bullet holes, so if we put a stop sign next to it, they'd shoot at the bullet, uh, stop sign rather than shooting up our solar panels. Yeah, it probably makes a lot of sense there, yeah. People had climbed power poles to steal the solar panels. Um, if you send a power pole, they had the stainless steel sleeve on, and that's to mm -hmm. stop possums climbing climbing the power poles. We'd put two on to try and stop humans climbing the power poles. Some 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 people are certainly dedicated as getting as close as they can to uh, live and exposed wires. But anyway, um, there's obviously they see some value in it for for whatever reason. Um, just a final question around the you know, sort of, is there a separation between IoT and robotics? So we see a lot of, you know, what is it, Boston Dynamics and their walking donkey dog, all those sort of um, scary ass robots they have these days. Is that sort of considered a, a field of IoT or, a, you know, or is IoT really completely separate and more about sensing the data rather than, um, you know, building robots and, and those sort of things? There are most probably more knowledgeable people than me who would think that they're essentially the same thing. I think that they're uh, different domains, but they interact and should play nice. Uh, robotics is mission critical, particularly with those Boston Dynamics, you know, the even simple things like the US military have got those John Deere um, tractors with six-wheel drive, and they follow the soldiers around. Those sort of things are mission critical, whereas IoT is often not quite so mission critical. Sometimes the robot platforms are good for shipping sensors around. Those robots are very impressive, though. Yeah, it's true. It's, it's again, it's another, I suppose, growing area that we see out there that, again, combines this um, mechanical engineering, electrical engineering, you know, 
IT, computer, software engineering all together and um, lots of opportunities for you know people to get involved if that's really what they want to get into. And I think it also, the thing I like about IoT and also the robotic side of it is um, you know, the mechanical field, you actually see something. I mean, it's all very well to write a piece of software and get something to display on the screen or a hello world as as the classics go. But to actually make, like you said, you were saying earlier, like a gate move or, or whatever, I think is, is sort of a different um, sense of achievement than, you know, perhaps getting uh, code to compile or getting something to display. I could be wrong, but my feeling is is that to see something mechanical is, is again, you know, a lot more powerful per potentially than just seeing it on the screen. So um, yeah, something I'd recommend people get into, have a look. Um, what I'll get you to do, Bryn, is maybe now just let people know how they can, um, you know, reach out to you if they do have any further questions or want some information on your projects or some advice on what they may be doing. And if you have any social media or other information that you'd uh, like to share with people. Yeah, um, on Hexter, hexter.io, I'm hexter.io, wet Kiwi Bryn. I've got a blog, blog.devmobile.co.nz, and I'm on Twitter as Kiwi Bryn. Basically, it's Kiwi Bryn, the standard Antipodean thing we put where we're from in a Twitter handle or a LinkedIn name or whatever. I, I'm really interested in machine learning at the edge. So if you land on my blog, you'll see lots of posts about machine learning and low-speed wireless. Excellent. All right. Well, I'll make sure I put that uh, in the show notes plus any links. Had to uh, make sure that you do check that out. I think that IoT uh, is a very exciting field. It's growing with the you know, cheap devices that are available plus the backends into things like Azure. It really gives you that scalability and that leverage. So get into it, have a play with it. I'll take the opportunity now to thank Bryn for uh, making the time today and talk about uh, the IoT side of things and the resources and everything else that he shared with us. So again, thank you, Bryn, very much for your time today. Thanks very much for allowing me to have a chat. If you're interested in anything in this field, have a look at my blog. And uh, there's a centralized place in microsoft.com where they talk a lot about iot topics and education make sure that we fill the pipeline excellent all right well we'll do our best to make sure that that is the case but for now thank you very much for listening to this episode of the need to know podcast you have been listening to the Need to Know podcast from CIA Ops. For training on using technologies like SharePoint Online or Microsoft 365, visit www.ciaopsacademy.com. By purchasing from the selections available, you'll be directly supporting this podcast. To provide feedback on this episode, visit www.ciaops.com contact.